The passage of scripture for Pastor Charlie's sermon this morning is 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Before I pray for the message, uh, is my thing on? I can't hear. I'm on? Can you hear me up there? Okay, good. I don't need to hear myself. I just need to make sure people can hear me, so thank you. Uh, before I pray for the message, I need to give you an update about our fall plans. We had some surprising news um, this week come to us that I think is good news, uh, but we need to work out some details. So we heard from the people at Hankey this week that not only have they not begun the project of restructuring the gym there, but they've actually delayed it for a whole year. So they're not going to do that project till next summer. And so the door has been opened up for us to go back to Hankey, which is definitely a better fit for us in lots of different ways. Uh, but I want to say two things about that. Um, first of all, we've only been guaranteed another year at Hankey, and so I think that that's a real grace from God that we've been given a little breathing space here, but not too much breathing space so that we understand we still need to be praying and pressing toward the day when we find a place of our own and where we can plant permanent roots of our own. This fall, we'll be kicking up again the, just this emphasis on finding a facility. So please just keep praying that God would lead us in the way that he wants us to go. We're not interested in trying to force something to happen, but we're very much interested in seeking God's will for us at this time of our lives together. So please be in prayer for that. Second thing is that the one thing that is going to change at Hankey is that we will have no storage space available to us there at all. So before we left Hankey, we were already uh, stressed in such a way with, with setup team related issues that it was not going to be sustainable for the long term. And now that we have to pack in and out of a trailer every Sunday without going into the details, it basically doubles the weight of the setup. And we simply cannot go back until we have some people rise up to help with setup on a regular basis. And so I think where we're at right now is we're saying that as soon as we can work it out with the folks at Hankey, uh, we're willing to go back there as soon as possible when we can get two things. First of all, we have to have a person that is willing to rise up and be a team leader for the setup team. And you would work with Vicki Johnson on coordination and you'd have to be on the setup rotation and there's some other details that I'll explain in an email this week, uh, this afternoon actually, that I'll send out to the church. And then we have to have three, preferably four people who would sign up and be willing to be part of the rotation to show up at 7 a.m. on Sundays and help with setup. So 
All you need is a driver's license and a way to get to church and an able body. If you're willing to help, you can help. A family could do this. A community group could take a Sunday a month or whatever it is. But we simply have to have people step up and uh, volunteer for one year to be part of the setup team before we'll feel comfortable going back there because we simply won't be able to handle the stress of setup giving the, the current team. So I trust that the Lord will provide that. I say that to you positively and with hope that people will step up. So this afternoon, please be looking for an email from me uh, describing what those positions are about and what would be required. And please be praying for the part that the Lord might have you play in our return to Hanke and everything that's involved with that. And by the way, I probably should clarify too that since we're able to go back to Hanke, that means that we'd be able to have Sunday school and all that again. And we would just return to our normal pattern of church. So worship at 9 a.m., uh, Sunday school at, at 11, and the way we've been doing things for, for a long time. So as long as we can work out the setup stuff, it looks like we're going to get another year of going back to what is pretty much normal for us. So I, I give thanks to God for that. And now let me pray that the Lord will help us with the details, and let me pray for our time in the Word. Father, I thank you for leading and guiding us in the way that we should go. And Lord, even though this uh, door to Hanky is no matter what a temporary door, I do thank you for opening it. And Father, it really has been such a grace to us for so many years. And you opened it in a very unbelievable way 12 years ago. And it's just uh, just um, touching to me that you're opening that door again. And I pray that you would help us, Father, to work out the details. And I thank you for what you will do and how you will work in the life of the church. And now, Father, as we bring our hearts before your word, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that we would humble ourselves before our brother in Christ, the Apostle John, and I pray that we would allow him to shepherd us into your presence, to teach us, and to guide us into more of what it means to put our faith in you and more of what it means to love one another. I pray that you would be with me in my weakness and help me today, Father, to deliver this message in a way that's pleasing to you and truly upbuilding to the church. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. I've said to you a few times over the last uh, couple of years that we've been in John that John was many things with regard to the church, but I think primarily the way we ought to see him and understand him is that he was a shepherd of the people of God. He was not primarily a leader. He's not primarily a counselor. He's not primarily lots of other things that he did have to do. Primarily, he was a shepherd, which means that his calling, his job, was to help people come into the presence of God, live in the presence of God, live by faith in Jesus, live by love of, of the people of God, and, and live uh, uh, the, the mission of God out in the world. He is a shepherd trying to lead us in the ways of God. And so as we have come to his writings over the last two and a half years, first the Gospel of John and now through his letters, our aim has not just been to have something to say and do on Sunday mornings, but what we've been trying to do is allow this man to be used of God again to shepherd us into the presence of God. In many ways, John has been our shepherd throughout this time, and, and I think even this morning that's true. He was a wise shepherd, and I think he learned something from his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus had a way of saying things in such a way that if, if you wanted to understand what he was saying and gain insight into it and life from it, you would have to stop and think about what he said. Often, Jesus said things that were puzzling. Sometimes he said things that didn't seem puzzling on the surface of it, but the more you think about it, the more you see uh, depth. And I think John 
This is really a teaching technique. It's a way of drawing people in to the depth of truth. It's a way of, of calling people to meditate and think and pray and wonder what is being said and how it applies. And I think John learned this from Jesus. I really do. So much of what John says, he says in a way that at one level is just so easy to understand. It's so simple to understand. I was just thinking as we were praying this morning uh, of the first time that I read 1 John. I, when I first read 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, I wasn't even a believer. By chapter 3, I was a believer, literally, no exaggeration. But the first three chapters I read, I was not even a believer, and it made sense to me. So much so that I ended up converting. I ended up surrendering my life to Jesus. But I had no idea on October 26, 1986, three, 33 years ago now, the deep ocean that is the first letter of John. There is just so much there. And often John will say things in such a way that if you want to understand him, you really have to pause and think about what he's saying and how he's saying what he's saying. So the text before us today is a good example of this. At one level, you can read verses 1 to 5 of chapter 5, and it seems pretty understandable on the surface. It doesn't seem to be anything really particularly new or controversial or anything. But the more you meditate on what he's saying, the more you're going to see that this is a, a very deep ocean. And so I want to begin this morning by basically having a, a, a mini message before the main message, and that is to invite you into the regular meditation on the words of God. I want to encourage you not just to read your Bibles, but to really slow down and think about the things that you're reading. Don't allow all the distractions of media and busyness and responsibilities to literally train your brain out of the ability to think about what's being said to you. Because I think that if you're going to come into the depths of blessing and joy that God has for you and that he has for me, you and I are both going to have to take time to think. We're going to have to take time to pray. We're going to have to take time to listen. And this week, again, was another week where I looked at John's writings and, and, uh, and really puzzled over what he said, but then he really, really drew me in and enriched my life. So I pray that he'll enrich all of our lives now as we consider the words that he has to say. He begins in verse 1 with this. He says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. In the last section of his letter, John taught us that assurance of faith comes from the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Primarily, assurance of faith is a relational matter. It's not primarily a doctrinal matter. There, there are doctrinal issues involved, for sure. For sure. But primarily, it's the presence of the Spirit operating in our lives that gives us assurance of faith. And when the Spirit is operating in our lives, we learned last week that it bears the fruit of perpetual belief in Christ and perpetual love of other people. That's what he taught us last time. And now, in verse 1, he's basically reiterating what he's already said in order to, to help us dive deeper into it. And even in just the way he said what he said, he's already helping us to dive deeper if we'll slow down and think about his words. You've got to know this about John if you're going to understand his writings and get a lot out of his writings. He never merely repeats himself. If you're just reading on the surface, it seems like John's just repeating and repeating. And in a sense, he is repeating, but he never merely repeats. He's always inviting you in, into more and more depth, and that's what he's doing here. So on the one hand, John is reminding us that everyone who believes and keeps on believing that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That person knows God. That person has fellowship with God. At some point in time, they cross the bridge of belief. 
They were converted. They were born again. They came to life in God. They put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, the way John states the verb is he's actually emphasizing the ongoing nature of faith. He's not just saying that the one who believed a long time ago, but the one who is living by faith in Jesus, who is believing and believing and believing, not just generally or abstractly, but something very specific, that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the chosen one of God. Jesus is the savior of the world. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And when we come to the Father through him, we get everything, all the riches of heaven belong to us in Jesus Christ. The person who believes and believes and believes and believes that, that person has been born of God. That person is bearing the fruit of one who knows God and has fellowship with God. And then on the other hand, John reminds us that everyone born of God also loves others who have been born of God because they are his or her brothers and sisters in Christ. They are fellow heirs with Christ. We are together the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are together the bride of Jesus. We are together the people of God. As Peter said, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once we were not a people. But now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy together as a people, not just as collected individuals. And one of the great proofs that you have actually come to know God is that more and more and more you're gaining sight to see what Jesus sees when he sees his people. And you're gaining more and more desire to love and to persist in love, to press on in love, to persevere in love, to not just theoretically be the people of God, but to actually become the people of God together in a place. John is reminding us of the depth of what he's already said. But if we're not careful here, we're going to misunderstand him in a way that's very important. And I want to take a little time. Here's where we're going to get into a fairly deep ocean with John. I'm just going to be able to sort of point you in a way, and if you want more uh, to dive more into this part of the ocean of 1 John, you'll have to do that on your own. But I want to say here's the thing that we could very mis- well misunderstand if we're not careful. We could hear John saying that we were born of God because we put our faith in Jesus. We could hear him saying that our faith is the cause of our spiritual birth. And that's not what he's saying at all. In fact, John is saying the exact opposite thing of that. And I want to show you how I know that. And I'll tell you the way that I came to see this in his words, not just in a preconceived theology, but in his words. Here's the way I came to see that. It's by carefully meditating on the details of every word that's in his, in his letter. Inspired by the Holy Spirit as it is. Just simple meditation led for me to deep insight, and I hope that it leads to deep insight for you as well. Please look what John says. Read it carefully. Verse 1. Everyone who believes, present tense, everyone who is believing and believing and believing and believing that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Past tense. And in the Greek language, that it's the strongest form of the past tense that you can possibly use. Something has already happened that is causing faith to exist. 
And what has already happened is that God has caused his people to be born again, and then our spiritual birth becomes the cause of our faith. The reason we believe in Jesus is that God has caused us to be born. We have not been born because we believed in Jesus. This puts the emphasis on God's activity rather than our activity, you see? When we were physically born, at some point, each of us was conceived in our mother's womb. Each of us developed in the womb. Each of us was born into the world. We had exactly 0.0% to do with our physical birth. Is that not true? None of us chose to be born. None of us had anything to do with the process. Something happened to us from the outside as God worked through our parents to cause us to come to life. That is a metaphor for how spiritual life comes about as well. God is the one who causes people to be born again. You can look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, and you'll see it there very clearly. We're born by the will of God, not by the will of flesh. God chooses to do something in someone's life. He causes them to come to life in Christ. He causes them to be born. And once they see, then they believe. Our faith is actually the result of God's work and not the other way around. And this is so important because if that's not true, then our faith is simply a work that we do that causes us to be saved and that causes us to continue to be saved. And that is the last thing in the world John is trying to teach us. It, it is not a solid ground for assurance either because it puts all the weight upon us. It puts all the weight upon our desire and ability to persevere. But again, John is saying the opposite thing. The reason we believe and keep on believing is because God has caused us to be born. And because that's true, our faith in Jesus is proof that we have been born. Our faith doesn't cause us to be born. It doesn't keep us being born. It's proof that we are born, that we believe in Christ and we keep on believing and we keep on believing and we keep on believing. Maybe there were times in the history of the United States when that would have been a socially acceptable thing and a fairly easy thing to do. Maybe it would have been fairly easy to pretend that one believes in Jesus, but I think that's getting harder and harder and harder and harder. And day by day, as people persist in the joy of faith, the joy of believing in Christ, it's just fruit that we actually know God and that God has done something in us. Since this is the way that believing in Jesus works, then it also must apply to the second part of verse 2. This has to be the way that loving one another works as well. Our love for one another is not a work that we perform for God or even for one another. Our love for one another, specifically as the people of God to the people of God, is the work that God does in us and through us for one another. God is ultimately responsible for our faith, and God is ultimately responsible for our love for one another. In fact, this is what sets our love apart from any other love in the world, is that it's not our love, ultimately. The reason the people of God love the people of God is because we've been granted eyes to see who the people of God are, and we've been granted hearts to love. When true love is flowing between God's people, what's really happening is God is loving his people through his people. And it's the reality of the work of God in our midst that sets it aside, that gives it a, a particular aroma, that makes it different. Our love is not a work we perform, it's a privilege that we're afforded. Oh, how many times would we all have just quit the church and just walked away if our love was dependent upon ourselves? But the reason we persevere in love for one another 
is because it's God at work in us, causing us to love the ones he loves with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. John is trying to help us see, not just reiterate what he said already, but he's trying to help us understand the profound nature of the gospel. You see, all other religions beside biblical Christianity basically teach that you have to do X, Y, and Z in order to be pleasing to God. The true gospel says that it's God who's acted on your behalf because you and I were incapable. And when things like faith in Jesus and love for one another exist in your life, it is proof positive that God is at work in you. It's not something in which you boast in self, It's something in which you boast in God alone. Now, that said, it is possible to appear to believe in Jesus and love the people of God when one truly does not. It's possible for a person to claim these things when, in fact, they they even in their own hearts know that they don't truly believe in Jesus and that they truly, for the right reasons and in the right ways, don't, don't love the people of God. So how can we tell? How can we know that we're truly believing in Christ? How can we know that we are truly loving one another in a way that's coming from God and is pleasing to God? Well, John answered the first question in the last text, so I'm going to leave you to listen to the last message if you didn't get a chance to hear that. He talked about how we can discern whether we're truly believing in Christ or not. In this text, he begins to press in a little bit more now to how we can know that we are in truth loving the people of God. And look what he said in verse 2. By this we know, here's how you can know, that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Now don't you just love the Apostle John? (laughs) Don't you just love a man who seems to talk in circles? He, He just got done telling us, and multiple times by the way, that one of the ways that you can know that you're truly loving God is when you truly love his children. And then he says, hey, and you know how you can truly know you're loving his children? It's when you're loving God and obeying his commandments. It's like, well, John, shall we just keep doing the do-si-do here? Keep talking in circles? Or what's, what's, hap- what's happening here? Sometimes John can even feel a little frustrating like this. Like it just seems like rather than straightforwardly answering a question, he just keeps circling back to things that he's already said. But again, I really don't think he's trying to frustrate us. I do think he's trying to get our attention. I, I really do. I think he's trying to say things in such a way that if we're to understand him, we're going to have to puzzle over what he's saying and we're going to have to think. And I think ultimately what John is trying to do is help us to see the glory of the gospel as it is and he's trying to help us see the inseparable interplay between knowing God, believing in Jesus, and loving one another. As I said, these things can be distinguished, but they cannot be separated If you have one, you must have the other two. And if you're missing one, you do not have the other two. The knowledge of God, belief in Jesus, and love for one another. He's keeping on just trying to help us understand the nature of the gospel. That's what he's up to here. So let me just explain to you how I'm I'm reading what he's saying. I'd really love to hear if if you see other things. But this is sort of how I've processed what he's saying here in verse two. The primary fruit in the life of a person who truly loves the people of God, is that they first love God and then those people. There is an order to their love. In fact, there's an inviolable order to their love. First they love God, then they love people. This works in marriage too. 
The reason Kim and I have persisted in marriage is because I love God more than Kim and Kim loves God more than me. Without that, we could not have the marriage we have now. And the reason our relationship with Rachel has gone the way that it's gone is because Kim and I value one another over our value of being parents. Our relationship comes first and out of the overflow of that comes our ability and our our desire to persist in parenting. There's an order to love. And I think that's what one thing John is trying to help us see here. If you try to just love people as a first order of things, first of all, you're going to run out of steam. You're going to run out of gas. You're going to run out of energy and insight and passion and the ability to love. But also you're going to miss the whole point. Because love for, for the body of Christ, by the body of Christ, is simply the overflow of love from the Father. That's it. It is an overflow. And while that might seem simple, might seem a simple idea. It's a very profound idea. This means that our love for one another just simply cannot be a fleshly love. And this is what marks it apart. This is what sets it aside. This is what makes it different, is that in all of its details, it flows from the Father. How can you know that you're truly loving the people of God? When you're loving them with the love of God. When God comes first and then them. When the order is proper, you can know that you're on the right track. That's what John is trying to help us see. So then how does this work? Just practically speaking, how does our obedience to God end up serving as fruit, as proof that we're actually truly loving one another? And again, this is just how I process this this week. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. When John says that those who love God, John says that those who love God display their love for him by obeying his commandments. That's really key. Their, their love doesn't, have a, doesn't lack content. There's a, like a specific sign that somebody's walking in the love of God. Namely, they're valuing and, and obeying his commandments. They're looking to him. They're listening to his words. They value his wisdom. They seek his power to apply those words to life. And imperfectly as they will, they apply those words to their lives by the Holy Spirit. And then, as they discern his will and apply his will, they overflow with love toward one another. They stretch constantly toward the day when the will of God becomes their way of life. This is what it means to love God. When his will becomes my way of life, Or as Tim Keller, I think, has so insightfully said, here's what true freedom is. When you really want to do what you ought to do, you're free. And this is what the Christian life is stretching toward. The day when our heart is so much intertwined with God's heart that we want his will with all of our hearts. And our way of life actually is in accord with his will. This is what it looks like to love him. This is what it looks like to value him and walk with him day by day. And again, I say to you that the process of growing in that is not a work of the flesh. It's a work of the spirit. The one who has been born again will keep stretching toward the day when our father's desire is our desire. Period and end of story. As we listen carefully to our heavenly father and try to follow in his ways, understand his wisdom, and apply it to life, we see that chief among his commands to us is this command to love one another. Jesus said it in the upper room. It was repeated several times. With regard to the life of his people, it is the primary command upon us that you would love one another as I have loved you, Jesus said. Or as Paul and John have said in their own ways, that we would love one another in the way that God has loved us through Jesus Christ. And then that 
general command to love one another gets fleshed out with all these other one another commands that are much more specific but deeply related. So let me just read just a couple of the one another commands to you, just a few. Welcome one another, it says. Warmly greet one another, in other words. See each other for who you are, and with your arms and your heart open wide, welcome one another. Be glad that together you have become the body of Christ. Instruct one another, or as Paul says in another place, teach one another. Care for one another. Comfort one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. And we could go on and on. There are 30 some odd very specific one another commands that flesh out what it looks like to love each other. That's what the love of God looks like. So the picture I'm trying to paint is this. So as we seek God and listen to his commands, we run into all these commands that point us toward each other. And because we love the Father and we're seeking to live by faith in him, we're seeking for the day when his will is our way, then we apply those commands. And we find ourselves not just abstractly, but really loving each other, really being kind to each other, really bearing with each other, really helping each other, really serving each other, really being patient with each other, really forgiving each other, really encouraging and exhorting and even rebuking and, 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 and teaching each other, instructing each other. We find ourselves living the life that our Father desires. And it's not just what we do, beloved, but the way it comes about that shows us that we're truly loving God's people. This is what John's trying to help us see. The flow of God's love from God to us, through us, to each other, that's what proves that we're actually loving the people of God, and it's not a put-on. There's a lot of folks in this world who know how to be nice to each other, but that's not what John has in mind here. He's talking about a very particular love that flows from heaven to his people. And this is how we can know. When the flow is in the proper direction, when we're looking to God, receiving from God, and then loving one another out of obedience to God, then we can know that the real stuff is happening. And I want to say again, probably I'm going to irritate you by repeating this so much this, this week, but this is not a work of our flesh. The love of the people of God, by the people of God, is genuinely an overflow of life in God. It's not something we do for him, it's something he's doing through us, and that's why it proves that we've been born of him and that we actually know him. John then continues, if you look in verse three, he says, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. We could go in and talk a lot about that word burdensome and what it means that his commands aren't heavy. But for the sake of this morning, I don't think we need to press too hard into this. I think that his point is fairly simple. And it's that when you seek to obey the commands of God by looking to God and drawing upon God and living by faith in God, you're going to find out that what Jesus said is actually true. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. When I go through times where the commands of God just feel horribly burdensome to me and difficult to keep, maybe even impossible to keep, I see that as an assessment of my heart that I'm not communing and drawing upon my Father as I ought. And any time I see that and then just draw into the Father's presence and pray to Him and read His Word and draw upon Him and share my heart with Him, I find all of a sudden it's not that hard to obey His commands anymore. There is a lightness to the commands of God that comes from our fellowship with God. That's all John is saying. 
It's like one emotional, maybe even physical sign you can have in your body that you're truly loving the people of God is that it just doesn't seem burdensome. Does it seem difficult at times? Of course. If, if life with each other wasn't difficult at times, why would we need commands that say put up with each other and forgive each other and be patient with each other, right? Why would you need that? We need that because life is going to be difficult. But what I'm trying to say here is I think that if there's a certain kind of heaviness to it all, it's a sign that something's wrong in the flow, in the order. And I think John just wants us to see that as we draw upon the Lord and then love each other, there's an, there's an ease to it. There's a beauty to it. There's a lightness to it, even, even if it's serious. Now, John, I think, really wants to press this into our hearts. And so if you look at verse 4 now, he continues with this. He says, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world. This is the key to all of it. What is it? It's our faith. It's our faith. For those who have been born of God, it is a fact of life that we will overcome the world. In fact, John says it more strongly than that. He says that in following Jesus, we have already overcome the world. Jesus said the same thing. It's like in this world, you're going to have lots of troubles, but be of good cheer. You have overcome the world. And his teaching to us is that because he overcame the world for us, now we overcome the world through him simply by putting our faith in him, which is why we will be glad to sing, not I, but Christ in me. We will be happy to sing that forever and ever and ever. In Christ, by faith in Christ, beloved, if you're a believer today, you have already overcome the world. This is a past fact, a past reality of your spiritual birth. And now because there has been this permanent overcoming through faith in Christ, you will overcome bit by bit, moment by moment, with the remaining issues with which you struggle and with which I struggle. We will overcome because we have overcome. I want to ask you, though, John was just talking about displaying our love for God by obeying his commandments, and now he put this topic of overcoming on the table. And I wonder, why did he do that? Why is he blending now the issue of uh, obedience to commandments with overcoming? Where did this come from, and what's the relationship between obedience and overcoming? In chapter 3, verse 4, uh, if you'll just look there real quick, you'll see John gave a real um, straightforward definition of sin, one of the most straightforward ones in the whole New Testament, actually. And he just said that sin is lawlessness. So that's a hard word to translate. It actually doesn't mean uh, to be without the law. It's kind of The word lawless seems like it means to be without law, but that's not what the Greek word means. What the Greek word there means is to live with disregard for the law. It's not that you don't have it, it's just that you set it aside. You ignore it, you minimize it, you demean it, you reject it. Whatever the intensity of your rebellion toward God, you rebel against his commands. And as we learned when we were there in chapter 3, to disregard the law is to disregard the lawgiver, who in this case is God. So the heart of sin is the disregard of God, and the expression of that is disregarding everything he has to say. We set aside his words because we've already set him aside. We disregard his words because we've already disregarded him. That's the heart of sin. That's the heart of the flesh. That's actually the essence of the world. What do we mean when we talk about overcoming the world? What is the world? Well, we could say a lot about that, but for, for the time being, let's just say this. 
The essence of the world is this instinctual desire to disregard God and everything that he has to say. And to instead set ourselves up in the place of authority and come up with our own sets of rules and regulations, our own sets of truth. We live by our own wisdom rather than God's wisdom. This is the essence of sin. This is the essence of the world. So when a person is born again, when they come to life in God and they put their faith in Christ, a very profound thing happens. God not only gives them eternal life, but God, in fulfillment of his promises, gives us a new heart. We see and we feel things in a different way. Let me just read you a couple of the ancient promises that have now come true in Christ. Jeremiah writes, uh, this is the Lord himself speaking though, I will put my law within them and I will write my law on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's fellowship that God has in mind and he's gonna do that by making the heart value his words, making the heart value his wisdom. And then he says again, two places in Ezekiel, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and I will give them a heart of flesh. I will give them a soft heart that cares, that feels, that understands, that listens, that applies, that, that is humble, that is teachable, that is moldable. And they will walk in my statutes and, and my rules. They will keep they will obey my commandments, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. They will be a people who obey me from their heart, because I'm going to give them a new heart. And again, Ezekiel said, I will give them a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. We're talking about a transformation of heart here, beloved. We're not just talking about a process of people learning to conform to rules. We're talking about a massive change of heart that now desires what God desires. There's so much left to be worked out in my life, but I remember the massive shift from October 25th to October 27th, let's say. And the thing in between was the moment of my conversion on October 26th. On October 25th, I didn't really even know what the Bible was, and I frankly couldn't have cared less about what was in it. I could not have cared less. By October 27th, I had come to life in Christ by reading his word, and oh, the words of God were so precious to me. I dropped out of school at eighth grade. I could hardly remember how to read. But I remember sitting on my parents' couch that day, October 27th, with a Bible in one hand and a dictionary in the other, and I just read and read and read and read and read until I fell asleep. I could not get enough of it. Why? It's because God put a new heart inside of me. It isn't because I joined some religion or now I wanted to obey some rules. It's nothing like that at all. New heart, new desire, new passion. What does God have to say to me? And how will God work these things out in me? This is what happens, beloved. This is what happens in the life of a believer. And this is why his commandments are just simply not burdensome. And this is why John is saying, listen, the way to overcome the spirit of the world, the spirit that would disregard God and everything he has to say, is not by trying to overcome the world. You try to overcome the world, you're going to fail. Because the truth is we are the world and the world is us. Overcoming the self is the same thing as overcoming the world. In the self, it's impossible. But when God causes people to be born and causes them to begin believing and believing and believing in Jesus, 
suddenly here comes the new heart and who, here comes the power to overcome. Our victory is our faith. It's not, again, it's not that our faith is a work that causes us to overcome the world. Our faith is put in Jesus who has caused us to overcome the world. This is how it works. This is the relationship between obedience and overcoming. Overcoming is obedience to God. Do you see? Overcoming is the shift of a heart that doesn't care anything about what God has to say to a heart that cares everything about what God has to say. And of course we all have our moments. Of course we all have our seasons where we struggle to even want to hear the word of God, much less live by it. Of course. But it is the persistent faith in us that just won't quit, that just can't quit, that maybe even at times wants to walk away from God and the people of God, and we just, there's just something in us that won't let us go in the most positive sense of that. This is proof, beloved, that something's happened in us that is just not about us. It's a proof that God has caused us to be born and that we truly know him and that we truly, truly have fellowship with him. Beloved, chapter five, verses one to five are a very deep ocean. And here, John is trying to help us understand the nature of the gospel. And I really wanna encourage you to let him lead you into that place. Because I will tell you that I think it's the natural desire of every person is to live the kind of religion where we're basically working to earn favor with God. This is the natural religion of the heart, where we work ourselves toward God, where we earn things toward God. And if we're not careful, we'll read almost everything in the Bible through those lenses. And John is really laboring hard to get us to see life in Christ through different lenses. So let him shepherd us. Let him lead us by careful meditation on the words. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That means it's God's power at work in us that's the key to everything. And this is how we can know that we know him. When we're persisting in happy belief that Jesus is the Christ, the only way to God, the truth, the life, the only savior of the world, when we delightfully persist in that belief and when we love the people of God, because God's love is pouring through us. When we see this at work in our lives, we can know that we have come to know him, and we can know that we are truly loving the people of God because it's not our love to them. It's God's love through us to them, and vice versa too. God's love through them back to us. So it's only fitting that John would conclude this small section with these words in verse five. He says, who is it that overcomes the world then? except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. There is simply no way, no other way to overcome the world than this. There is no other way. Living by faith in Christ because of a work that God has done in us. So if I could put the whole message into one sentence, it would be this. This is a little wordy, and I apologize for that, but I wanted to make sure and get all of the details in there. Here's the sentence. I hope it's, that I remember to put it up there. Yep, it's up there. We overcome the world by exercising faith in Jesus, which is a gift from God and which is displayed through obedience to God and love for one another. So let me read that again and just encourage you to let it sink in piece by piece. I think this is the heart of what John's trying to teach us here. We overcome the world in this particular way 
by exercising faith in Jesus and exercising and exercising and exercising it. It is an eternally present tense experience. Forever we live by faith in Jesus. This faith is a gift of God. It's not a work of the flesh. And this faith, when it's real, is displayed in a couple of ways. Glad-hearted obedience to God and glad-hearted love for the people of God. This is what John is trying to help us see. Now besides that, I wonder what his pastoral aim is here in the beginning of chapter 5. He's starting to land the plane, right? We only have a few verses left. We have uh, verses 6 through 20-something. I don't remember the exact last verse, but we're getting pretty close. And if we were reading his letter at full speed, we'd be right next to the end. So what is it that John's trying to accomplish from a pastoral point of view? Well, if you look at chapter 5, verse 13, you'll see he wrote his whole letter so that the people of God would know that they have eternal life. The Gospel of John was written so that we might believe. The letter of John was written so that we might know that we have eternal life. The assurance of faith is what John is up to in this letter. There are other peripheral things, but what he's trying to get us to see is that our life in Christ is certain because what God has done for us is irreversible. It is irreversible. And so I think here, in the beginning of chapter 5, John is trying to summarize and, and deepen the things that he said to give us a way to assess our lives, to look at our hearts and say, where am I at with the Lord? How are things going with me? So I don't know if this will be helpful or not, but I came up with three sets of questions based on everything John just said that I hope might help you to search your own heart. And I want to encourage you, you're free to take a picture of this, or by the end of today, this will be up on our website. You can grab it off of the website too. But I want to encourage you to maybe take some time alone with the Lord to think about these things. It would be even better, though, if you sat with, with a friend or a family member or with a community group and, and in a group setting, ponder these things together and see what the Lord might do. Here's some ways that we could use the content of chapter 5 to search our hearts. First, in the depths of your heart, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the only Savior of the world? Do you happily believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that there's no other way to God but him? Do you believe that? That's a real good question or set of questions with which to search your heart. Two, do you love those who have also been born of God? Not just people who belong to an organization called the church, but they've actually been eternally born of God. Do you love them? Do you love the people of God? Do you love the church? I'm getting as specific as I can. Do you love the actual human beings, the people in this room and, and not presently in this room, who make up glory of Christ fellowship? Do you love the church in specific ways, not just general and abstract and theological ways? Does your love for them flow from your love for God? And in what specific ways is your love demonstrated? Do you see the love of God's people flowing in your life? It's a really good set of questions with which to search your, your heart. And then number three, do you express your love for God through heartfelt obedience to his commandments? Is his will becoming your way of life? Do his commandments seem burdensome to you or do you find that his yoke is easy and his burden is light? Again, just questions designed to help us search our heart and to think about the flow of life with God in our lives right now. And I pray that God will use these things. As you search your heart, if you come to the conclusion that as imperfect as you are and as, as you know, none of us are finished yet, 
right? God's working in all of us. We all have a long way to go. But you see the, that God is at work in your life and you see that the fruit of salvation is there in your life that I just want call, to call upon you to rejoice in the surety of your salvation because John wants you to celebrate this fact, not just that you have been saved, but that you can know that God's work in your life is irreversible and that this promise hangs over your whole life, that he who began this work in you will finish it to the day of Christ Jesus until you are perfectly formed into his image along with all of his people. That is your destiny. So if you find the fruit of salvation in your life, beloved, receive it and rejoice. Let God affirm you as his child. Let God share with you maybe even a deeper joy of fellowship with him. If I could put that in another way, let John do what he's trying to do here. John is trying to shepherd the people of God into the joy of knowing that we know God. That's what he's up to, so let him do it. If you search your heart and you have to honestly admit that you do not truly believe in Christ and you do not truly love his people, then I want to encourage you to bow your life before God and repent of your sins and believe. Now you might say to me, well, you just got done telling me over the last 30 or 40 minutes that I can't do that, that the only reason I can believe is because God acts upon my life, and until God acts upon my life, I can't believe. And I would just say back to you that that's true. I'm not going to reverse what I just said, but God uses things to cause people to believe. He uses texts like this, and he uses sermons like this, and he uses pleas like this to get people to finally bow their knee and give their lives to, to Christ, surrender themselves to Christ. And so I want to say to you, if you have to search your life and, and honestly admit, I just don't see the fruit of this stuff here, but I want God in my life, then there's a promise in the Bible for you. And it says that every single person who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. They will come to life in God. They will have eternal life. So don't overthink the details. If you want to believe, believe. And then after you have believed, you will look back and say, God did it all. God is responsible for it all. To God belongs all the glory. But for now, if you have a heart to believe, then I just want to encourage you, believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our brother John. Thank you for his shepherd's heart. Thank you for his wise words. Thank you for the accessibility and depth of his words, both there at the same time. Thank you for helping us gain some insight today, Father. And if anything I have said today has not been right or helpful, I just pray you'd cause people to forget it. But Father, what was of you? Oh Lord, I pray that you'd be looking over your word to perform it, to cause it to bear the fruit that you intend it to bear. Lord, we thank you for being a father who speaks, and we pray now that your word would have power in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.